Bibles today and go to Romans chapter 8. I am going to read the first eight verses. And I want to teach this morning on the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, which is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You'll see in verse 2 again, it says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So that's what we're teaching on. In previous chapters, the Apostle Paul dealt with the issue of sins in the plural as transgressions that are done. In fact, in chapter 1, you'll remember his discussion where he says the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Now, he dealt specifically with the fact that many people hold the truth of God in a wrong way. Then he goes on to say that some people go so far as to change the truth of God into a lie. They modify it. They alter it. For example, in the book of Genesis, God flooded the earth because of man's sin. It was terrible what God saw in this earth and the way that he handled it. He flooded the earth with waters. But after Noah and his family exited the ark, God made a covenant with Noah and said, I promise you, I will not flood the earth again. And he told Noah, as a sign of my covenant, I give you the rainbow. I put the bow in the clouds. So whenever it rains and you have an opportunity to see a rainbow or several rainbows that are stretching across the horizon, that's simply God saying to you again, I promise. It's reiterated over and over again. In Revelation chapter 4, verse number 3, it tells us that John looked up and saw the Lord on the throne, and there was a rainbow that stretched around the throne, which tells us that our covenant-keeping God is still in his position of power. According to Genesis, then, the image of the rainbow is a symbol of covenant, a symbol of promise, symbol of hope. But look at what an ungodly population has done to that symbol today. Its meaning, its use has been perverted so that when you see rainbow flags and colors blowing in front of people's homes today, it has nothing to do with the book of Genesis. 
And they go out of their way to make sure that you understand there's no connection at all with any remnant that is in the Scriptures. In those early chapters, Paul dealt with sins, but he also dealt with justification by faith and grace and justification by the blood of Jesus. That becomes a prominent topic. What does justification mean? It means that it's just as if I had not sinned. I stood before God a guilty sinner, but yet the charges were dropped, I was acquitted, and because the mercy of God was extended to me, I'm now as clean and as innocent as a newborn baby. That's what it means to be justified. And God did that work in your life when you repented and believed upon the truth of the Word of God. But when you come to chapter 6 in Romans, he begins to expound upon sin as a singular work or force in a Christian life. Now, if there's any teaching that unveils the opposing entities of the law of God and the law of sin, it's Romans chapter 6 and Romans 7. You see where Paul is saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And he says in that chapter, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the law or the body of this death? And it, it brings the question, how can a lover of Jesus still yet be flooded with so many immoral and foul desires? And it's that state of affairs that leads many Christians to backslide. They walk with God for a period, and then because they have these internal struggles taking place even after they become a Christian, they turn and go in the opposite direction, and they say, I don't want to deal with this despair, this whole dichotomy, this war inside of me. There's a part of me saying, walk with God. There's another part of me saying, walk with the world. And that warfare is so great inside of some Christians. But chapter 8 gives us the formula for overcoming. And it gives us insights on how to live an overcoming life. Now, the word overcoming is important because in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven churches mentioned. And to each of those churches, Jesus said, to him that overcomes, I'll give you something. So he extends a reward out there, almost like bait. If you overcome, I'll grant you to eat of the tree of life. If you overcome, I'll grant you to sit with me in my Father's throne. If you overcome, you'll rule and reign with me. But that word overcome implies that there will be challenges, obstacles, things you have to face. In fact, the word overcomer is a combination of two words saying coming over. That tells you that life's journey for you and for me is filled with heartaches in our path, and you have to overcome people, places, and things. Now, what do I mean by overcoming people, places, and things? There are some people who have lived in a lot of different addresses. And sometimes you run into people who have a calamity that takes place in a certain area. House burns down. Somebody close to them dies. Then they move away. 
and, and they'll say things like, I'm never going back there. I can never return to that region because I have so many bad memories there. And the moment I get there, I'm flooded with sorrow because of that. And so they, they're afraid of certain places, fearful of certain places. But that's not the plan of God for a Christian. You've got to overcome that sentiment. You've got to overcome that feeling because in that same place where you experienced tragedy, you had good friends, good relationships, people that love you. So now all of them have to suffer and you isolate yourself from them simply because you haven't overcome the grief that you experienced in one location. Think about that. There's a person that may have lost a job, but just because you were fired from a job, you don't walk away and say, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to work again. You go and look for another job. Plenty of people have said, I had a good friend or good friends, but they betrayed me. And they, they shared something personal with other people. And because of that, they now have built up a wall around them. And they, they declared, I'll never get close to anybody again. You should not think like that. You have to overcome the bad experience in your previous relationship. Because you can't bring that bondage. You shouldn't bring that bondage into your new relationship when you have people that love you and want to have some kind of interaction with you, but because you had one girl or one young man that treated you bad. Now all of a sudden you don't want to go forward in life. Jesus said you've got to be an overcomer, and the overcoming life is possible if we walk with the king. Now it's possible for a church to be raised up by God and then besieged by so many troubles that they're conquered by those troubles. There are plenty of churches that have had that happen. It was God that lifted them up, but then changes came. If you read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, then you know at no time does Paul censure them for sin. It's almost like you're reading about the one perfect church in all of Paul's epistles. Never one time does he rebuke them for anything that has to do with iniquity. However, Paul dies, and some decades later, Jesus comes to Patmos, visits John, and says, take a pen, a scroll, I want you to write down what I tell you. And he begins with the church at Ephesus, and he said, look, I've been watching you, I've been paying attention to you, and I've noticed you've left your first love. Left your first love. That, that begs the question, how, how did this happen? How does a church go from being flawless to a, a defective church? How does a church begin in strength and then turn around and backslide into something that is far away from what God originally intended when it's supposed to be a candlestick? I can tell you what happened. The people changed. The people changed. So here you have Jesus observing the candlestick, and I wonder when he looks at us this morning as a fellowship and he looks at the churches of Nebraska and Kansas, what does he see? If Jesus had to testify about your Christian life today, what would he say? What could he say? Could he talk about your faithfulness? Could he say that you love him more than you love any other thing or person? Or have you come to the place in your life where God is secondary? That is the issue in your life, then that affects the church. 
It does. And this is why we have believers that can operate in the anointing and in the power of God and the, the, the presence of the Lord will manifest in them and yet they have all the self-regarding character traits of children. You know how children carry on, toddlers and little ones. You've got a little kid, he's holding on to his little rattler and he's making as much noise as possible and you try to take it, he's like, it's mine, See? mine, mine. And you've, you've seen kids in the back seat, you, you know, long before they ever were seat belts for a lot of you. Your kids get back there in the back seat, they're sitting next to each other, and then before long on that long trip, you can hear, hear somebody, Mom, tell him, stop touching me. Stop touching me. See? All of that comes on, stop touching me. Or, or, Mom, Dad, you told us to come down here and play. Joe won't play with me. Or, or Josie's making faces at me. Mom, will you tell her to stop making faces at me? See, all, all of that comes in. Yeah. And, and then the kids, they get angry because there's a birthday party. All the friends from their class were invited, but they weren't invited, so they're sitting at home crying. These same kinds of traits that you see in children, you can find in a church. You can find Christians that will say, well, I just don't understand why, why they won't talk to me. They get together and fellowship with everybody else, but nobody ever bothers to, to try to fellowship me, with me and get to know me. And then we, we find ourselves acting childish. See? This is my ministry. This is what God has called me to do. Stop, stop touching what belongs to me, and, and you just get over into what belongs to you. Those kind of childish traits. We see them often. And these things hinder a church from being what it needs to be. In Romans 8, verse 1, you can see there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is untangling this mystery for us, and he uses the word walk to describe a way of life. There's no condemnation for people whose way of life conforms to the Spirit. So to walk after the Spirit means to permit the resurrected Christ to live through you and in you because your old nature is crucified in Christ. What you were before you became a Christian is crucified. The only hindrance to fully displaying Christ through you is our flesh, that old man, that old nature, that law of sin. Your enemy, your problem is not your mom, not your spouse, not your pastor or your enemy. Jesus never complained about being unable to manifest the fruit of the Spirit because of some backslidden Jews. There's nobody keeping you from walking in love or manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. What keeps you from doing that is the fact that the adversary says there are these things called the works of the flesh that are there. Now, you can go to any river around here, and we get a good rain, and you'll see the force of the river just kind of moving along. And you see the, 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 uh, the water level just kind of rise up within that, that riverbed. But you can turn around some weeks later and go back to that, that same river, and then sometimes you'll notice that river will have slowed down a little bit. And you're trying to figure out, well, we should, we've had a lot of rain. I don't understand what the issue is here. 
then you start walking upstream, and then you look, you start looking around, then you see all the evidences of beavers. And then you realize they've been at work. And sure enough, if if you've got a beaver's den somewhere there in that riverbed, like we had one time down there by Hebron, then that water is just slowly coming through because they're trapping it. Well, if you if you want the river to flow, then you blow up the dam. You get rid of the dam. And if there's anything hindering the manifestation of Christ in our life, we've got to understand there may be beavers in our life that are preventing the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. So we've got to deal with them individually. What could those be? Could it be excessive anger? Could it be pride? Could it be pity? Some people, they're in the reverse aspect of pride. They want pity. They want everybody to feel sorry for them, no matter how they tell their story or what's going on in their life. You have to feel sorry for them. They're the victim. Everything is gone wrong for them. Nobody ever loved me. My mom dropped me when I was a baby. Dad left me at school several times afterwards. They didn't let me play baseball and football like I wanted to. I never did get my golf game the way that I wanted it. And because of that I'm 40 years old now and can't make a decision for my life. That's somebody whose life is controlled by these weaknesses that hinder the manifestation of Jesus Christ. So then what is the flesh? It's the old nature that controlled your life before you were a Christian. Now you think about that. What were you like when you were religious? What were you like before you were truly born again? The attitudes and habits of that old nature are bound up inside of you, and it governs all the impulses of that old nature, that old man and its, its life. I can promise you, whatever you were before you became a Christian, you'll revert back to all of that and more if you backslide. Listen to me. If you were an alcoholic... Before you became a Christian, I don't care if you've been saved for 30 years, you backslide, and I can promise you within a few hours you'll be sitting on a bar stool somewhere. If you got delivered of, of all kinds of tobacco uses or whatever it might, might be, if you backslide, you'll revert back to that. If you had an anger problem and you were the kind of person who gets so upset with people that you put a fist through the wall, and the kids were afraid of, of how you would act. But yet in Christ, you had a harness put on you through the Holy Spirit, and you were tempered by the love of God. If you backslide, you'll go back to what you were. How do I know that? Because the Bible says that just like a dog returns to its vomit, that unbeliever go back to what he was. Everybody in here has seen a dog do that. He expurgate all of that food. Be terrible down there looking at them. Before you know it, he's lapping it back, lapping it back up like there was no problem at all. And the moment a person turns from God, they're automatically turning towards these other things. This is the battle. So in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 20, 21, listen to what it says. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness. The uncleanness is generic. Lasciviousness, that's unrestrained appetite, sexual appetite. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations. Jealousy is there. 
wrath and strife, seditions and heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of the funniest altar calls I've seen in my life is when people are trying to cast the devil out of things that really are works of the flesh. We label things that are flesh as if it's a devil. I mean, they'll spend half hour yelling and screaming, come out, and all it is is a matter of choice and preference. All of us have choices and preferences. But since sin and death are inextricably linked together, death walks hand in hand with the law of sin. So as you're embracing the one, then you're holding hands with the other, and it constantly tries to pull you backwards because the old nature in our life is contrary to the personality of God. It says that in Romans 8, verse 7, the carnal mind is hostile towards God. It's not subject to the law of God. This is what he's saying. So flesh loves an environment in which it can thrive without the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You see that every day, you know. Be positive. Don't say anything that's going to hurt anybody's feelings. Don't create an atmosphere where somebody will feel bad. So if, if, if you take a test, we don't want to announce who got the highest grade because the people that came in second all the way to last, they'll feel bad about themselves. If we have a race, a 100-yard dash, you've got to make sure you give out a ribbon even to the slowest kid who's on the track because you don't want anybody to feel that. See, that old nature wants to be pitied. That old nature wants to thrive because it doesn't want to be crucified. We're focusing on self-esteem today in our society, but however you describe it, it's still self. It's still selfish. It needs to be crucified. And the Bible says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And by training people to cater to flesh and pamper the old nation, we, the old nature, we produced a group of people today that cannot handle any kind of conversation that brings disagreement. Oh, if you tell somebody, if you're just having a conversation with them, say, you know, that, that dress really doesn't strike me as that beautiful. You know, oh, my God, you're bullying me. I'm not bullying you. I'm just telling you I like your dress. Oh, well, those overalls don't really stand out to me. They're not so attractive to me. Oh, you're bullying me. Not bullying you. You're just expressing an opinion. But we have a, a situation today where this old nature loves the world and all of its secularism. So the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that's in the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, those three things. But then when you start asking the question, how do I define those things, you'll see it's hard to deal with it. The average Christian is in fellowship for as little as one to three hours a week. Think about that. One to three hours a week. That means... The rest of the week involves an atmosphere that doesn't exalt Jesus. Yeah, the rest of the week is like that. You go to work, and unless you work in a, in a very confined and restricted area where you can control the, the atmosphere, then you're not in an environment that can exalt Jesus. 
You turn on the television, it doesn't exalt Jesus. You turn on the radio, the radio doesn't exalt Jesus. You, you, you turn to your sporting events. You go to football, basketball, wrestling, golf tournament, all of that. Jesus is not exalted in any of that. It's all an exaltation of talents and physical things. So one to three hours. And that's the atmosphere. And flesh loves all of the amusements that draws people away from Jesus Christ. And when you make the determination, I'm going to spend a little bit more time with Christ. I'm going to get up earlier to read the Bible, have devotion, stay up later to read the Bible. You start thinking like that, then that old nature says, oh, no, 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 we're not going to have that. Now look, one to three hours of Jesus a week is enough. We don't need to be adding more to this now. You'll grab that Bible, and as soon as you start reading it, within 30 seconds, you're sleepy. That old man's not interested in that book. He's interested in other things. Now, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so Sunday mornings at our house was get up, cut the grass, do all the yard work and all of that. And once I was done with that, or while I was doing that, my mom and dad went down in the basement, turned the record player on. They wanted to listen to Motown or the Blues. And, of course, whether it was B.B. King or anybody else, they put on playing around, around that house. I mean, they're not, they're not talking about the king at all. And, of course, with, with the blues, I mean, nobody's ever happy. That's why they call the blues. <laughs> Who's happy? Spouse then left me. Don't have anybody around at all now. Well, you... You, you go into the other environment, I joined that Marine Corps, got all these young men around me, they're 18, 19, 20, 21, and they're all into that heavy metal music. I mean, just a lot of yelling and screaming. You know why it's called heavy metal, because they all sing like somebody dropped an anvil on their foot. A whole lot of yelling, you know, screaming and yelling. Then I have roommates, and, and, and then you come out here, and then there's, there's more the, 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 the country western type of a, of a style of music that appeals to people. But, but for us growing up in, in the city in Cleveland, Ohio, what, what blacks loved in the blues, we always found that in the country music for all the other people. Because, I mean, you turn on the country song, and you know, you're in the store walking around, and you're listening to that. Poor little man, he's talking about his dog left him, his wife left him. The only thing he's got left is a truck that's faithful. I mean, just this is a pretty sad life, you know. That's, that's all that's left. But, but that old man thrives in that secular world, you see. And that's what makes that old nature happy because the conviction of the Holy Spirit isn't there. And it loves to be in an arena where it can assert itself and exert itself and manifest its attitudes. And when you get into some kind of an argument with people, that old nature wants to come and cuss and scream at somebody as quick and as fast and as loud as it can. But you're a Christian. Don't cuss anybody out. Keep that old nature up on the cross. Don't, don't use four-letter words as a substitute for some kind of grief you're experiencing. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain and use it as a substitute cuss word. Learn to take your vocabulary and, and allow your conversation to be used to be seasoned with grace. 
and used for edification. That way Christ manifests himself through you and that old nature dies. I'm telling you, I've, I've heard some, some stories of, of preachers and it, it's heartbreaking to me the number of times I've had to listen to people in these little towns that tell me, Pastor, you wouldn't believe where we were the other day. I can't believe that pastor even talked like that. But yeah, that's some preachers, they want to be good old boys. One time in one of the senior centers, there was a, a couple of pastors that were together in a place. One's telling foul, dirty jokes. The other's using bad language and all of that. And one of my parishioners came up to me afterwards and said, you know, pastors, I listened to that preacher doing all that cussing. The only thing that kept coming back to me was, I know that would not be Pastor Darrell. They're doing that. Said, you're right. Because we don't, we, we don't cuss at each other. You can come and put your ear to the, the window at our house. You're not going to hear, hear me cussing at my wife. You might hear her yelling at me, but you're not going to hear, hear me cussing at her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. All right. But, but, but that's important. You understand that that old nature has to be crucified. It wants to be pampered. And whatever kinds of private addictions and habits you battle with, you've got to try to set those aside to be crucified so that your life isn't governed and controlled by anything that would lead you to some kind of abuse of a substance. I mean, the believer is to be sober-minded. That's what the Scripture says. In chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans, again, it says the spirit of life makes free. And in verse 2, it tells us that spirit of life produces liberty and makes free. That tells us that freedom is a choice. You may or may not do something. When you lived in sin, you didn't have a choice. You were dominated by that power. You were under the dominion of it. You had a hard time turning from that appetite, and it controlled you. The cravings were so strong. Yeah. There are plenty of people that when they leave church today, they're going to go home and their body's going to be shaking and trembling, and they're going to be craving some kind of medicine, prescription drugs. And they're not going to be happy until they get those prescription, prescription drugs in, into their body. And there are plenty of people that, that even as they sit Somewhere in the park, or sit in a church, their palms are getting sweaty because they're craving some kind of a liquor. Something that's going to give them an, an ability to be able to relax themselves. And, and their bodies are fiending for, for these different things, whether it's marijuana or whatever it is. That old nature would love to see everything legalized and free because it makes that old nature happy. It's a condition that that allows me to sit and experience life without conviction of the Holy Ghost or condemnation or shame or any kind of embarrassment. But the inner workings of the Holy Spirit in the heart and mind imparts to the believers new desires, godly purpose, and strength to resist temptation. So you become a Christian, God gives you a new heart, and he implants in that heart new appetites. Where before you became a Christian, you weren't interested in prayer, assembling with believers, 
listening to Christian music, and all of a sudden you love Jesus with all your heart, you can't wait to get the fellowship. You, you're looking for a Bible to read. You want to spend time with God, spend time in prayer. You can't wait to, to, to create an atmosphere in your home or in your car where you're worshiping and praising God because you realize now I'm a changed person. And new fruit is being manifested in different areas of my life. If you tell me, Pastor, come to my house, I'm taking you to the backyard, I'm telling you, I've got the sweetest pears on this tree back here that you have ever had. So I'm telling you, I'm running to get to your house because I love pears. And when I get to that house, you walk me back there and I see oranges. And I'm going to say, either, either this person is delusional or they're trying to play a trick on me. And the fruit of the Spirit is manifested in your life, not for you, but for other people. There's no apple tree that's bringing forth apples so that the apple tree can consume the apples. It's so the people that walk through the grove can consume all the fruit. And the fruit that's on your life by way of faith, joy, patience, and so on and so forth, that is for other people. You come to church and people have different fruits and manifestations, different seasons of their life. And if you're passing through a difficult time in your life, you spend time with that person and that fruit's going to be a blessing to you. Yeah. If you're being talked about and slandered, you get around some people with patience. Now Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 7, that we go through trials of faith. And these trials are to bring our faith into a place of praise and honor and glory before Jesus comes. But I've never met anybody that wanted their faith to be on trial. I don't like it. I'm sure you don't like it. You don't have to believe God for persecution. It just comes as a matter of course. But it's in the midst of various temptations and trials and tests that a person's character is revealed. We'll come to know what you really are, what I really am, in the midst of temptation and a trial. Some people, they, they sit there and you think, when you're putting together your team for basketball or baseball, you're looking at all the players out there, you're thinking, that guy, he seems like he has a pretty good temperament, good personality, and we'll make him the captain. Then you make him the captain and you realize now he's got this position, but he doesn't have any leadership skills. He doesn't like to stand and be assertive and talk to people and tell people what to do. Or it could be the opposite. Here's somebody that you put in a position of authority, and they can't handle dissent, disagreement. And because they can't handle it, they just fall apart like, like, a, like a bunch of cards that have been put together. But, but know, folks, that in trials and temptations, a person's character is going to be revealed. Who you are will be known eventually. You look at what's going on in the political world. Yeah, we, we got a lot of bad stuff that, that's going on, and we got a lot of people going against politicians, and, and they're afraid of what the outcome, what the potential outcome could be. But you've also got to understand that, that a person's past, that mess will catch up with you. Because there are enough devils in this world that will always remind you of what you were. And if there's a whole lot of evidence that they can keep slinging in your face, that mud will never stop being thrown. But, they did, but the enemies didn't produce the mud. We produced the mud by living in sin. It's under the blood, but it's not under the blood for those that believe in throwing it back into the faces of the people. So trials reveal who we are. I thought back in uh, 2008, 
when uh, Mr. Obama got in and all these people were going crazy thinking he was going to be the greatest president on planet Earth, I, I, I thought that, you know, listening to them, the world was really going to become a better place. Now, he, he was never my candidate, but I'd go preach for some of my friends and I'd walk into their office and I'm telling you, they had life-size photos of Mr. Obama in that office. Yes, they did. Come time for that second term for him to run, I mean, I said, what happened to the picture? So you don't have the picture up here no more. What, what happened to the picture? They said, oh, my, we, we had no idea this man believed the stuff he believed. I said, well, he told you when he was running for office what he believed. Why are you surprised by what he did? He told you what he believed, you see. But, but the position of the office revealed the kind of iniquity and filth that came out. Well, on the other side, when Mr. Trump was running, people were labeling him like he's the Cyrus of the Old Testament. God's raising up a man that really doesn't know him in order to do great and wonderful things. And, and, and then it gets in the office, and you look at all this petty stuff and tweeting and fighting. Oh, my God, this man's a narcissist. He's never, met, he's never met a problem in his life that he is actually got to be accountable for. He never did anything wrong. Everything that's been done the best in this nation, he's done it. He's the first of everything. And I, I listened to that, even though I love his policies, but his character was revealed in all of that. But truthfully, he wasn't any different in the White House than what he was when he was on the street. And most of us are the same way. You give us power... And we'll be with power, either a greater perversion of what we were before we had the power, or we'll be a greater blessing. See? Temptations, trials, tests reveal who we are. So you have an opportunity when tempted. Do I become offended? Do I exaggerate? Do I become a moody person? That old nature is looking to justify every sensitivity that you have in your life. And that old man, he'll start rehearsing all the abuses that have happened in your life. And say, now look, now you remember 25 years ago, all these people were calling you names. I mean, after all, do, do you really want to go to that high school reunion? I know your family's getting together and it's going to be... It's going to be 150 of them. They're going to have a lot of food. But you remember how Uncle Charlie really treated you. He hated you, you know. And, and that old man had rehearsed all of those different offenses and problems in your life. And pretty soon, as you listen to that voice, he'll start giving you an excuse for why you act the way you do, think the way you do. Yeah. Well, I've got a right to be bitter, Daryl. You don't know what I went through. I don't. I know what Jesus went through, and I know on that cross he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But that old nature holds on to grudges. It refuses to forgive, and under the guidance of that old nature, I can tell you where you'll end up. You'll end up on the couch listening to a therapist that needs more therapy than you. Yeah, that's where you'll end up. And that therapist will be saying to you, um, we can set up some appointments, but this is going to be about $350 a half hour. And then you'll come in there, and you're going to pay all that money, and the therapist's not going to do any talking. You're going to do all the talking. The therapist's probably going to ask two or three questions. First question the therapist's going to ask is, well, tell me what's going on with you. 
and then you're going to start pouring out all of this filth and vomit and past yuck, and people treated me so bad, and oh, my stepbrother hated me, and I got fired from 62 jobs in 30 days. It's just horrible the way I've been treated, and you'll go through all of that, and then after 10 minutes, then the therapist will say, well, well, when that happened to you, how did that make you feel? Then you go through 15 minutes of explaining all of that, of how you felt that I just wanted to crawl in a corner and die. I couldn't even open up the blinds or, or pull the drapes up. I just really felt like everybody was talking about me, and I was paranoid. And the whole time he's looking at that watch, because right at about 26 minutes, he's going to say, here's what I think we need to do. We should make appointments for the next six months, and you come in here once a week, and we'll work on all of your issues. Now, I just want to remind you, it's going to be about $350 for 30 minutes, but we can work on this, and you'll feel a whole lot better at the time we get done with this over six-month period. And sure enough, you'll get up and walk out, and psychologically, it's like, oh, I just feel so much lighter. But I'm telling you right now, you can come to church, get on your knees, lift your hands, Confess your faults to God. Ask for greater grace in your life to make it through every trial and temptation. He won't charge you a dime. And you'll find that he'll bring the freedom and deliverance that you need. Grace for the moment is what we need. And if we follow the king, good things can happen. So I know that Peter tells us that God has given to the believer everything that he needs for life and for godliness. But the way God leads us, he brings us across that hill called Calvary, takes us to that empty tomb so we can experience the grace of God. You cannot appreciate grace until you've had to deal with guilt. Pardon is of no essence to you in your life unless you've had to deal with shame before and we've got a community today a educational system today that doesn't want people to experience any kind of shame live any way that you want be a guy dress up in a skirt paint yourself any way that you want you come and sit down you're going to be approved you're going to be promoted you're going to be popularized be a girl change your name you know, tell everybody that you're really a boy or whatever. Get in the swim contest, beat all of the biological girls, and, and, and people put you up on the platform, give you the trophy, and then that world applauds and said, it's wonderful, it's a great and mighty thing. But, but those people need the law of God applied to their life. Paul said the law of God is what points out sin, but it's through the law of God we come to know what sin is, and it's through the law of God we're pointed to Christ to know what grace is. Yeah. How normal, how natural can these things be if we're confused in our identity? We need to know who we are. So here in church, we like our little girls to look like girls. We like our boys to look like boys. If somebody came through the door and was a transvestite, I wouldn't say one word to him. I'd get up and preach the gospel. Shake a hand. How you doing? Hey, pretty heels you got on there. You know, preach the gospel. Yeah. They'd be here for a couple of weeks, a month. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm not bothering anybody. 
But then if somebody tells me that they love Jesus and they're a Christian, now they get a personal visit from me. And I come and I say, now look, you say you're a believer. That book says here is how a believer's life is supposed to be lived. Paul said there's no inheritance for somebody that's effeminate. If you're going to be around here, you've got to change that life. We can't have the little boys and little girls getting confused about their identity because you're trying to tell them your life is acceptable to God who rejected it in his Bible. And, and from there, as we proclaim the gospel, the Spirit of Christ sets people free. But you cannot set people free if you don't introduce them to the truth. Yeah. I look at little Gentry back there. That's a beautiful little girl. One day she's going to stand up in front of the church somewhere. Somebody's going to want to marry her. There'll be a young man that pastor probably have tackled and thrown to the ground two or three times. But nevertheless, that marriage is going to take place. And, 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 and grudgingly, we, we're going to have to give her away. I mean, one day, Talon and Trace, they're going to find some young ladies that are going to be attractive to them, and they're going to want to cross the, the threshold and stand in front of witnesses and say, I do, but nobody's going to make it easy for them either. Yeah. But folks, a preacher's got to preach the book, amen? Got to preach the book. Praise God. Praise God. Let's stand on the Word and let's not be deceived. Let's stand today. Yeah. So whatever battles you're facing, whatever you're dealing with in your, your own life, personal, private addictions, problems, attitudes you're wrestling with that you're wanting God to deal with, He's able to deal with. And don't walk out of here thinking that, that you know, you, you've got to live your life under some kind of condemnation because of this or that. What I am saying to you as a Christian, though, is if God ever puts his finger on anything in your life and he says, I would like you to stop that now, then you should believe that God will do that because he'll never convict you of something without giving you the power to walk away from it. Yeah. Don't be using language that will hurt your kids and hurt your spouse. Don't do that. If, if, if we're impatient, and we tend to be with our spouses, if we're impatient, ask God to give us the grace to be as patient with our spouse as we are with the people in the church. Because, I mean, when it comes to being gracious and patient with people in the church, I mean, we all tend to have big hearts when it comes to that. We'll listen for hours at a problem somebody has when they're in the church, but then we're sitting at the house and we're reading a book or you're watching something on television, your spouse comes in and wants to say, say something to you, you hardly want to lift your head from the newspaper. Yeah. Because you know your spouse isn't going to leave you. Yeah. But God's big enough to help us. So, Father, as we've taken the time this morning to look into your word and to talk about a few things, this was not to lower a hammer on anybody, but it was to present us with truth. You've called us, God, to live in the liberty that Jesus Christ has provided through the mighty power of the Holy Ghost. And, Lord, wherever you see entanglements this morning, where you see the, the tentacles of sin that are holding us in bondage. Lord, we pray for the breakage of those right now. Work on every attitude, work on every heart. 
Don't let us leave here like we came, Lord. Let us stand in your grace, approaching the throne, knowing that we can find grace to help in a time of need. And Father, whatever somebody's battling with privately, secretly, I pray for their deliverance. I pray for your power to be manifested. We love you, we worship you, we praise you, Almighty God. There's nobody like you, Lord. We honor you today, God. Thank you, God. Amen, amen. Let, let, let's do our best, folks, to keep that old man on that cross. Amen. Keep that old man on that cross. Exhibit the attitudes of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit. We do that. This church will always be here. It will always be here. Yeah, no, no, no church is going to go away with fruit of the Spirit manifesting the way it's supposed to. But, but we love you, folks, and, and, and thank God for people that want to hear truth. I mean, I know that through the years, there have been times I've come up here, I've preached some blistering messages, as well as some good encouraging ones, but you folks keep coming back, so that tells me keep on the same trail. Amen. Keep preaching Jesus. Fathers, we depart from this place, but never from your presence. We pray that you be with each one of us till we meet again. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, and everyone said, Amen.